I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today we talk about IOL calculation after LASIK. The conventional methods don't work well with the increasing number of post-refractive surgery patients that have had either PRK or LASIK. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. As medical director of Genentech, Dr. Yanchalov declares salary from Genentech, patent application, and work with the Peristat Group. As medical monitor of LASIK-CC, Dr. Saltz declares salary from that company and also salary in contracted research for Alcon. Ken Hoffer declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Throughout the developed world, general ophthalmologists are about to face a serious problem. The literally millions of patients who have undergone eczema ablative refractive surgery, like LASIK and PRK, are beginning to present with visually significant cataracts, and we have no consistent means of correctly calculating the powers of the intraocular lenses we intend to implant. Although many methods have been suggested, some of the best ones rely upon knowing the patient's pre-LASIK refractive and keratometric data. In practice, the assumption that we would have such information is, to be generous, optimistic. If we don't know what we should do, we can at least all agree what we should not do. We should not base lens calculations upon keratometry readings. This is because the post-LASIK cornea is often a great deal flatter centrally than it is paracentrally where the keratometry readings are obtained. Any cataract surgeon who uses conventional lens calculation means is sure to have a very hyperopic patient postoperatively, and a very unhappy one, because unlike other patients with cataracts, these are people who have already put their eyes at some risk and spend quite a bit of money to achieve emetropia. One is almost tempted to just bring an autorefractor into the operating room and obtain readings during that brief time when the patient is aphagic. In fact, that is exactly what Shawna Yanchalev, James Saltz, and Ken Hoffer did. I'm delighted to have all three of them as my guests today. Why do conventional methods of intraocular lens calculation have to be improved? This is Jim Saltz. The, the conventional methods don't work well with the increasing number of post-refractive surgery patients that have had either PRK or LASIK, not so much RK anymore, but we'll even see some of those. So we've learned that we need to pay special attention to those patients, and even with all the techniques that we have, we still have occasional errors. So having taking a look at another method, this intraoperative method, either as a double check on your other calculations, or in some cases you can't get decent information about past history. In some patients, particularly RK patients, you get irregularities in the corneal maps that you can't, so you can't trust those numbers. 
it just gives us another tool to try to look at see how this method compares with the other ones and then the tough choice is which one do you use then I actually haven't had the confidence in it yet to use it solely uh, but in the cases we've done where we've looked at it it's been at least as good as the conventional methods of calculating the power and the only thing I totally agree with uh, um, with uh, what Jim said that the, the conventional methods uh, uh, really um, fail particularly in that situation where where we have some modification of the corneal surface from prior surgery uh, I mean the conventional methods have carried us a long way uh, to their credit uh, including you know some of them uh, uh, like Dr. Hoffer is, is also online and he uh, has helped perfect some of them uh, they've carried us for uh, 40 50 years uh, and um, very successfully uh, from the very first uh, implantation which was done um, I think many years ago in the 60s uh, where the refractive outcome was abysmal with minus 24 diopters to now where we're talking uh, in some of the papers uh, uh, the numbers are you know more than 90 percent uh, success which is defined within one diopter of final emetropia uh, but uh, I think the one study that really opened my eyes to to what is needed was uh, uh, the, the study which was published in Cornea in 2002, and there they uh, really uh, looked at a number of patients and compared uh, uh, the uh, current formulas, the conventional formulas in patients that are uh, normal patients without any prior refractive surgery versus patients that have had prior refractive surgery. And the interesting uh, finding uh, was pretty dramatic uh, at that time was that uh, close to 90% of the controls, these are patients that hadn't had any refractive surgery, were within one diopter of emetropia, uh, uh, compared to uh, close to 30% of the uh, patients that have had prior refractive surgery were within one diopter of emetropia. So I think this illustrates, uh, I think, some of the dilemmas that we're facing and, and, and you know, how are we going to further optimize uh, our, our approach to these patients. And in, in my personal uh, experience, uh, you know, there is a way to increase uh, and extract further benefit from conventional methods. Um, and I think the double K method and some of the other uh, solutions that have been proposed are um, uh, very original. Uh, but also, it may be time to really uh, pause and rethink uh, is it time for a paradigm shift? Is it time to really look at something more fundamentally different uh, than just uh, optimizing uh, the conventional technology? Ken, is the primary problem with the A and K methods of lens calculations that we currently have that in keratorefractive patients that the paracentral power of the of the cornea is different? Uh, from the from the central corneal power that the patient's looking through basically a different part of the the cornea from the part of the cornea that's being measured by the keratometer. The visual um, effect of the cornea uh, in the more central region that's outside the range of uh, what instrumentation is reading on the cornea. So the instruments are reading farther out, and they're not catching the true flatness of the uh, of the cornea, and that's the major problem. And the instrumentation has not been developed yet to be able to get those measurements. So there are there are a lot of uh, different ways to go about trying to guess it. You know, I'm sure everybody listening to this is familiar with uh, 
the various methods, the clinical history method, and so on, so forth, and so on. But many might not be familiar with some of the other uh, newer things that have come up that are uh, other ways to try to guesstimate what the true corneal power is. And I've posted those at uh, ilab.com. And uh, if you click on the button that says calculations, there's a whole sequential list of every method so far that's been recommended for trying to calculate the K reading. And uh, as Jim has uh, mentioned, uh, these you know have worked pretty well so far. But uh, what uh, Sean has come up with is obviously a way to eliminate the K reading as a, as a factor in, in error. So um, and uh, the results of the study have shown that. Uh, this certainly can at least equal what we would get with uh, uh, normalize. Sean, can I have you describe the design of the study? Yes, um, certainly. I uh, would basically preface this by giving a bit of history. I started uh, this as a uh, small project uh, during my uh, residency, and uh, um, it, it was initially... Uh, not really formulated to be uh, a significant study by no means. It was uh, pretty much a, a, uh, an experiment uh, with a couple of patients uh, to get a sense of, of what can we obtain um, intraoperatively. Um, I just felt that uh, at that time that uh, the time of, of transient intraoperative aphakia is, is a very privileged uh, uh, time. You have the patient in a position where you want him or her. The patient is very accessible. And, and somehow uh, there is this window of opportunity to really uh, estimate what is the optical deficiency of the whole system when there is no lens in place. There is simply the cornea as a refractive medium and, the, of course, the aqueous and, and, uh, and the vitreous as well, but there is no confounding done by the uh, cataractous lens. Uh, and it first started with a few patients, but eventually, it, uh, with the help of, of uh, Jim Souths and, and some of the other co-authors, and, and also with the guidance of uh, Dr. Hofer, we were able to uh, really grow that study uh, and to the point that it turned into a biphasic study. We have one phase of the, of the study was the derivation phase, the derivation stage, where we uh, uh, used 22 eyes of 22 patients uh, who were undergoing standard uh, uh, cataract surgery, uh, who had not had any prior refractive surgery. They were just uh, uh, scheduled for a uh, regular cataract extraction. Uh, in these patients, uh, we uh, did intraoperative uh, aphakic autoretinoscopy to derive the aphakic spherical equivalent and, and then use that to uh, correlate to uh, their outcome. Uh, and we actually correlated this to two things. First, the IOL that was calculated by the conventional formulas, and two, we correlated to the final emetropic outcome after it was adjusted for post-operative refraction. And, and this was used to derive the regression formula uh, for normal eyes. Uh, subsequent to that, we uh, applied this in another uh, set of 16 eyes of 16 patients six of whom were post-refractive cases. And in these eyes, we used exactly the same method. We did intraoperative aphakic autorefraction uh, to obtain the spherical equivalent uh, at that time in surgery. We really did not use our uh, formula that we derived uh, in the first uh, phase 
to uh, guide or in any way influence the uh, implant power selection. We just used it parallel to that to monitor and, and look at the validation of that methodology. And, uh, and in these 69s, we uh, were able to uh, calculate and estimate derive a power of the IOL based on this new uh, refractive uh, optical biometry. And that was used to compare against the conventional formulas that were used. Jim, in practical terms, how did you do this during surgery? How did you auto-refract patients during, during cataract surgery? Did you have them sit up? I mean, is, is, there, is there some way to align the auto-refractor with the patient while the patient's still lying down? And did it, did it add time to the case? This is Jim Salz again. The few times that I did it, we basically just tried to I put on a new pair of gloves. They, they put towels around the patient eyes on the lids so that we, in case we touched them we were still okay that we would then remove. We reformed the anterior chamber with with just BSS after removing the cataract and then just tried to get alignment as perpendicular as you could with the autorefractor until we would get readings. So we would take three three readings and then basically just average the result of those three readings. It, it only added maybe three or four minutes to the time, and then we would just, you know, take the gloves off and finish the case the traditional way. Now, presumably, you you could only do this this procedure if the cataract surgery were being done under under topical anesthesia, so that the patient could fixate on the fixation target. Or was there some external means to align the device with the patient's eye that did not involve having the patient look at, at a at a target? No, they can't really see the target very well anyway because they're aphakic. Uh-huh. You're you're basically just trying to get a reading. You know, the one we were using was a I think is a NIDEC, and you can kind of see an image that you're looking through to to help you see where the pupil is and so forth. But the patient actually, I don't think, is aware of any of the target that they would normally be able to see. So it's certainly not ideal, but it seemed to work okay. Sean, were you able to obtain readings in? All of the patients that you tried this on? Yeah, uh, this is uh, Sean Yanchilov again. Um, I, in the study uh, where we have about 38 um, total eyes, uh, we were, had no problem uh, doing the keratometry measurement and, uh, and also the autorefraction because this autorefractor that we use also takes keratometry. Uh, but uh, keratometry wasn't really used, uh, and we, we didn't uh, follow that. We just used the global spherical equivalent. Uh, for all these patients, uh, as Jim said, uh, it took about you know three, four, five minutes to uh, obtain the uh, autorefraction. Uh, initially, uh, I would say in my first cases, uh, it, it took me about five minutes, and towards uh, uh, the end, it was much faster because we we had a handle of the situation, how to control the eye and 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 the positioning. Um, we had uh, one case where there was a capsular tear. Uh, and uh, and we had no problem obtaining autorefraction. We had a couple of cases where there was a bit more edema, uh, and we didn't have any problem uh, autorefracting. Uh, we even obtained uh, autorefraction on one extra cap patient, and and uh, to our surprise, that worked pretty well. Uh, I remember we had one case where somebody had uh, an RK with a very uh, much distorted cornea with warpage. And, and uh, that was the patient we really couldn't uh, auto-refract uh, uh, or get a number of. And I think this may have been even one of uh, Jim's patients. 
where he had multiple RKs or one RK with, with a fairly distorted cornea. And I think in these cases, uh, you, every time you, you really cannot get a good autorefraction or, or the media in any way is uh, impeded, you're not going to be able to use that method. But in most cases, I would say a standard cataract case, we had no problem. Post-LASIK uh, seems to work very well. Uh, maybe in, in patients with multiple refractive procedures or, or particularly maybe in RK, more difficult cases with RK where the cornea is very warped, I think that may be a problem sometimes to obtain autorefraction. Once you did your pilot study with the first 22 patients uh, in order to produce the derivation of the uh, lens calculation model that you then used uh, to, to calculate the lens power, for the 16 patients that followed that you did as a validation series to compare these, these patients to uh, patients who were undergoing the selection of the lens by more conventional means, how did your method compare to the conventional method for intraocular lens calculation, both for the 10 patients who had not undergone keratorefractive surgery and for the six patients who, who had done? Uh, yes, this is uh, Sean uh, Janschulov again. Um, uh, to answer this question, I'm just going to pretty much quote the results that we have from the paper. Uh, and in this validation group, which, as you said, was 10 patients, uh, uh, 16 patients total, 10 of them were normal eyes, standard cataract extraction, and six were post-LASIK eyes. Uh, we did, I thought, pretty well. We had about 100% of the eyes were within one diopter of emetropia. That was for the um, uh, our model and uh, for the conventional model. We also had 100% of them. Uh, and for the post-LASIK eyes, uh, the, the numbers were 83% with uh, the intraoperative optical refractive biometry method. We had 83% within one diopter compared to 67% uh, within one diopter with the conventional formulas. One thing of note, though, is that in these conventional formulas and in these particular cases where there was prior refractive surgery, uh, we used a very uh, extensive and comprehensive array of uh, tests, and, and, and pretty much uh, most of these patients, if not all, uh, went through calculations using multiple formulas out there, including historical case and data, um, and uh, you know to try to optimize their uh, the selections of uh, the selection of the IOL. Uh, so uh, you know, then there are cases where uh, we really um, did everything possible with the conventional methods uh, to select the best method uh, and, and, and arrive at some kind of uh, predictive IOL power. Uh, and in, in some cases, this is not in some in the real life that may not be the case because you don't always have the luxury of having historical data. But in this six eyes, which is a very small series and uh, and it's a very small number as well. Uh, we we did uh, uh, compared to uh, conventional biometry, we we did a little better. Uh, of course, a bigger series would be needed to uh, to really validate that and to see if we need to in any way optimize our methodology for these post refractive cases. Because what we did here was we used the same con uh, derivation series and the same formula that we derived from normal eyes and apply it directly to post-refractive cases. And it may be the case that these post-refractive cases may need slight modification uh, to even get better outcomes. Ken, as, as part of the empiric model that you developed for, for this study, you employ a constant that's similar 
to an A constant, uh, but which accounts for the, presumably, for the variations in the placement of the intraocular lens within the, 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 the patient's eye. But it does not account for positional differences in the lens that would result from anatomical differences in the, in the patient. And, and what I mean is, is this. Patients with very, very long eyes or patients with very, very short eyes, the relationship between the position of the lens and, let's say, the nodal point of the eye is, is not factored in, at, at least from, from my reading, uh, of, this, of this study. Well, you're right. Most people don't understand that the A constant actually represents the position of the IOL, or as we refer to it today, the ELP, the effective lens position. And what, uh, what the formula does is basically uh, make a difference between the lens A constant, or ELP, that was used in the study uh, compared to the lens implant you're using, and you're absolutely right. They're, uh, the, uh, you'd have to personalize these, and you'd have to uh, make some ad- mi- minor adjustments. But you got to remember that uh, the, the problem you brought up is whether in very long eyes or very short eyes, uh, this would change. Well, first of all, we're dealing in these cases with primarily long eyes that have had refractive surgery. Correct. And so they're all going to be in the long eye category. So therefore, the formula was derived from that type of an eye. And therefore, uh, you've sort of eliminated that. Now, if you start taking this concept and applying it to short eyes, uh, then your, your, your question you bring up is an important one because now you may have to consider adjustments uh, in, in that formula that would take into account the fact the anterior chamber depth may be uh, deep, uh, uh, shallower than the results you got in the, that we got in the study. It strikes me that the great strength of the the technique that you that you outline in this paper, and frankly, the the reason that I think that this study is so neat, um, is is that it eliminates the need for doing K's or trying to assess to to to, to get a get a single number from the the corneal power. And I'm wondering if um, your intention is to combine this technique with preoperative axial length measurements, uh, which would address the point that Dr. Hoffer just made, whether the, this, is, this is something that you plan on factoring in, kind of rather than A's and K's, doing A's to make sure that someone's not completely out of line, and then employing this... Um, formula or, or modifying in order to produce a new one? Yeah, I, well, I would say that that makes sense. I mean, it's probably going to be different. You know, when you think of the post-refractive cases we did with only six eyes, maybe all those eyes were all 25 or 26 millimeters. We may not have had any 30 millimeter eyes in there or eyes that are way out of range, and it's unlikely that this formula would apply to everybody. So having more information, obviously you're going to have to do a lot more cases and look at that, what you're just proposing is, could we have a different formula on, a, on an unusually long eye compared to a moderately long eye compared to just a slightly long eye? Most likely there will be that, but it would take a lot of data to get that. Um, in answer to, I just want to make another point. You asked earlier about the difficulty in doing this. In private practice, most of the cases we did, in fact, all the cases I did were just topical anesthesia and for, as far as making the measurement whereas the majority of cases at the county hospital usually have a retrobulbar. 
and I don't think there was any difference in the difficulty in obtaining the readings in, in either group. So I can probably add to this um, uh, uh, that in our study, uh, we had a, a, a range of uh, axial lengths and a range of powers that we used. I think the, the shortest axial length we had was 21.4 uh, uh, millimeters, and the longest was 25. In terms of the powers that we ended up implanting, uh, the, the smallest uh, uh, dioptric power we implanted was 12 diopters, and, and the highest was 28.5. And what we calculated with our formula in the 12 diopter range, we predicted uh, uh, we were within 0.5 of emetropia. And uh, what we calculated with the formula in the 28.5 uh, diopter range was again within 0.5 diopters of emetropia. So somehow, I think the axial length in this study, in this particular cases we had, did not really show a major difference. And uh, and I would say, in my mind, when I look at how this new technology uh, fits into this whole understanding of of, uh, of, of emetropia, uh, is that to, to a great degree, the axial length ends up being factored in this global autorefraction. Because what we do at the time of surgery, uh, when the eye is completely aphakic, we do an autorefraction and we derive the spherical equivalent at a certain vertex distance that represents the optical deficiency, no matter what axial length it is, uh, the total global optical deficiency of, uh, of the ocular system. Now, uh, the relevant uh, and, and very important uh, point is, is the effective lens position. And that's something that is not very intuitive to this uh, design that we have uh, and can be optimized a lot uh, uh, in the future. We're also considering to add intraoperative anterior chamber depth uh, measurements at the same time, which can be incorporated into the uh, design of the scope, where you can use OCT uh, to uh, really obtain uh, the measurement for the anterior chamber depth. And that can be another thing that will really help to gauge the effective lens position, at least at the time of uh, surgery. Uh, so. Uh, there are still ways to go with this technology, and in my mind, this is just the very beginning, and we do see a positive signal sufficient enough to say, well, that may be a way to go, and we can further incorporate a lot of other variables, uh, even in, if we want to do intraocular pressure measurements or intraocular keratometry. But to my mind, also another important way to improve the quality of that technology is centration. We have done this experiment by using a handheld autorefractor, as Jim said, uh, and that's not a perfect system because you don't always really center it through the visual axis. Uh, if we are able to incorporate that into microscope systems, then one can really center it and ensure that the autorefraction happens through the visual axis. Uh, potentially, uh, one can use systems to ensure that this matches the preoperative visual axis and the point on the cornea that uh, is most relevant and, and, and ensure that the autorefraction is, is the most relevant one. Because in patients who have had RK or LASIK, different positions on the cornea have markedly different uh, powers. And if we don't autorefract through the right point, then that can cause uh, error downstream. While we're on that subject, do you have concerns about obtaining these data in a dilated patient? Because often we'll, we'll get readings that are, that are different 
in um, someone who's had LASIK or certainly someone who's had radial keratotomy if the pupil is dilated as it, it obviously has to be during, during surgery as, as, as opposed to when it's in its normal state? Yeah, I don't think it matters, yeah. Uh, I think the, the, the only thing that happens with dilation, non-dilation, that affects the movement of the lens, but we don't have a lens here to worry about. Do you have to be careful during surgery not to overfill the anterior chamber uh, when you get these readings or, uh, or, to, or to underfill it? How, how, how critical does that have to be? Yeah, I don't think it. I mean, it's pretty hard. If, it, if you don't inflate it enough, obviously it's going to make a difference. You'll have folds in the cornea and all kinds of stuff. But as long as you inflate it and the chamber seems normal depth and it's not, I think a little bit too much fluid probably wouldn't make much difference in anything that I can, that I can think of. We didn't measure pressures. I think somebody criticized that, that we should have done like a tonometry so that we were measuring at a constant pressure. But I'm not sure. Ken would probably be better one to answer that as to why that might make an error, whether the pressure was 20, say, versus 40. I don't see how it makes a heck of a lot of difference, but I'm not sure. Well, my, my, this is Hopper. My opinion is it's probably not going to make a major difference if you've got the eyes inflated up to a normal pressure. That's That's got to be somewhat the criteria. As you said, if you're too soft, you're going to get folds, and if you're maybe too tight, you're going to get a little bit of a distortion of the corneal shape as a, as a potential factor. But uh, I can't imagine somebody trying to blow the eye up to 40 or 50 millimeters of mercury. But I'd like to make a, a comment, an overall devil's advocate comment. Obviously, this, uh, this uh, procedure is a work in progress. Uh, if you look at the practicalities, especially for those listening to this, that... Uh, uh, you know, in your daily routine of cataract surgery, there's two aspects of this technique. One is is dealing with the, you know, real problem of eyes that have had refractive surgery. And uh, there certainly is going to be more interest in that area. But if it were applied uh, overall uh, for all eyes, just normal, normal uh, corneas, and the, the concept of replacing this is, uh, is tantalizing, replacing axial length and K-readings and formulas and everything by, by doing this. But if that were the case, it really would require, there would be two problems that we might foresee. One is, is that you'd have to be absolutely sure that your hospital, your operating room, uh, IOL power supply were adequate to make sure you had the precise lens for that patient. And if you had 10 cases that day, and the first three eyes used up your uh, 21.5 diopter lenses, and now you're on your sixth case and you need another 21.5 and you don't have any. Uh, you're going to be now compromising and using another power. So that could get to be a little bit of a problem, making sure you always have the power you need, because obviously if you're going to do this, you're not going to be doing axial lengths and Ks uh, beforehand. Uh, that's the whole purpose of eliminating it. So you'll have no idea basically what the patient's going to need precisely. And the second is, is that my concern is if you don't have some kind of readings done before, um, and if you should wind up with enough corneal edema not to get a reading, uh, you're kind of up to crick. So those are just some critical comments of applying this on a broad scale. And so, but I think there's a, uh, a lot of these things can be worked out, and especially if there are manufacturers that will produce something and they'll make it practically easy for the surgeons to do without uh, being a cumbersome process. I totally agree with uh, Ken uh, when he says that the, the supply of lenses is critical because uh, you don't want to have surprises at the time of surgery. Uh, this is something that 
in the future, uh, you know, I don't expect this technology replacing uh, anything yet, uh, just serving as an additional tool. But if we're going to move towards a more refractive optical method, which is what this is, you know, an optical way to derive an optical uh, variable, um, then this will have to come into place, uh, rationalizing your supply and, and trying to figure out how to integrate the technology. Uh, I think another place where this technology uh, seems useful, and it's come to my attention from some of the uh, physicians that have already tried it, is in cases of pediatric surgery, uh, where where you may have difficulty to obtain very good preoperative biometry. Uh, so uh, you would be able to do that intraoperatively. And also in cases post-silicon uh, oil, uh, where we have sometimes problems uh, again, with the conventional technology to come up with the best uh, IOL uh, power. So uh, once the oil is removed, uh, and then uh, an IOL power can be uh, derived and calculated based on the intraoperative optical refractive biometry. So these are other applications, and I'm sure other ways we'll find down the road to, uh, to really, one, improve that technology and find its other applications and uh, how relevant it is in the uh, in uh, the entire ophthalmic surgical space. Uh, at this point, I think it's come useful in my practice for patients who have had prior refractive surgery. Uh, of course, uh, I've done a, the complete array of tests for them to make sure that uh, uh, I have an idea of what I'm going to face intraoperatively and then use that uh, uh, technique to, uh, to kind of validate, verify, and, and, and get a sense uh, if I'm very much off or not on the readings. And, uh, and that's a fair game, uh, especially in those difficult cases uh, where, where this can, uh, can be used. Uh, where the technique would be, I would expect that in about five to ten years, if, if things move in the right direction and, and this gets to really be validated and proven, we, we may be able to use that in parallel or in some ways uh, substitute. Uh, of course, the savings to the system will be tremendous if, if one eliminates uh, an office visit uh, for preoperative biometry as a whole uh, and, and, and also for uh, implications for reimbursements uh, uh, can, can be, um, uh, you know, envisioned in the future. Uh, but uh, obviously this is something that we'll just have to see how the technology plays out uh, its due course. I, I did have one comment. As, uh, we mentioned earlier the concept of the double K method, the Aaron Berry double K method, when when doing uh, uh, patients with refractive corneas. And uh, a couple of important things to remember is that the double K method really is an advantage, and it's especially an advantage in the uh, using the SRKT formula and the Holiday One and Two formulas. And the SRKT I've always recommended as being the best in eyes longer than. 26 millimeters, and often these cases are. But the double K method is not necessary in the HIGAS formula. So if anyone is using the HIGAS formula, they don't need to do the double K because the prediction of the uh, effective lens position is not does not use the K reading to uh, predict that. So just a little uh, point of information people may not be familiar with. Jim, do you have any last comments? I, I would amplify on what... Uh... Sean was saying, I mean, I see this, if we could get a manufacturer interested and this could be incorporated so it could be done quickly, I just don't see guys going out taking handheld, you know, auto-refractors into surgery with them and going through all these hoops to do this. But if it was, you know, already on your microscope somehow, 
I could see this as a great way to double check, not that, you know, whether you're going to put in a 21 and a half versus a 20, but, you know, make sure you're not putting in a 16 when, she, when you should be putting in a 20. If somebody's made a mistake somewhere along the line, either the nurse hands you the wrong lens or the, the person who programmed your laser, I mean, your, uh, your IL calculations made a mistake in entering something, it would be great to have a double check that you're in the ballpark for the implant that you've pre-selected based on your office biometry that this would be a, a way of kind of quickly double-checking that. If, if it could be done in, say, 30 or 40 seconds at the time of surgery, it would be a great addition, I think. Jim, Sean, Ken, thank you very much. You're welcome. Sure. Okay, You're guys. Welcome. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Sean Yanchalev is medical director of Genentech and on the clinical faculty of the Duhini Eye Institute. James Saltz is Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Southern California and Chairperson of the International Society of Refractive Surgery of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, ISRSAAO. Ken Hoffer is Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of California, Jules Stein Eye Institute in Los Angeles, California. Their paper, Intraoperative Optical Refractive Biometry, for intraocular lens power estimation without axial length and keratometry measurements appears in the August 2005 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will... Of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Iancelev, Saltz, Hoffer, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231 in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.